Welcome back everyone to season four of the Kelly Mental Health Podcast located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Throughout this season, CEO Linda Kelly will be chatting with people from many walks of life across the world about a variety of mental health and wellness topics. Please keep in mind that this is not a substitution for counseling. If you would like to talk to a licensed therapist, please visit us at www.kellymentalhealth.com. Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly. Today we have a really special podcast episode. We have Victoria Evans as a special guest. She began her career in the corporate world with a prominent Fortune 500 company in the beauty industry in Montreal. And during this time, her challenges related to eating disorders, mental health, extreme dieting, and over-exercising became a catalyst for creating a solution to an issue that millions of people deal with today. As a successful intuitive eating coach, she is disrupting the wellness industry through her fundamentally science-based approach. You can tell I'm reading, but I don't want to mess this up because I want to make sure that her info is put out there for the world. Now, Victoria helps countless women heal their relationship with food by optimizing their mindset for happier and healthier lifestyles. And she's Canadian, but currently resides all the way in Bali, Indonesia, while providing solutions to women through her online coaching programs. Now, I just want to share that I was really excited for this episode because as many of you know, I've been very vocal and open about the fact that, of course, I, as well as many others, have struggled with food and weight for forever. And so I kind of came on prepared to fight a little bit. After talking to Victoria, I found such a sense of relief because really this isn't about the science, the nutrition aspect of things. What it is about is the shame and how using this intuitive eating approach takes away the shame and actually allows us to take our control back. So listen in, enjoy this. This was wonderful. I really felt a whole lot better personally after participating and I hope you do too. Welcome back everyone to season four of the Kelly Mental Health Podcast located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Throughout this season, CEO Linda Kelly will be chatting with people from many walks of life across the world about a variety of mental health and wellness topics. Please keep in mind that this is not a substitution for counseling. If you would like to talk to a licensed therapist, please visit us at www.kellymentalhealth.com. That's just so confrontational. I don't know. I know it's pretty aggressive, eh? Like I feel like it could do it a little bit less intensively. Like it's, it's yes. a lot. Yeah. This meeting is now being recorded. You can't hide it. Yeah. <laughs> it's concerning to think that they had to put that in place because people were, you know, and people didn't realize. Like, anyways. Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly. This is Victoria Evans. And it's so nice to finally meet you face to face, sort of through Zoom. <laughs> Virtual face-to-face, yes. I think most things these days are a lot of virtual, but excited that hopefully in the future, moving more back into person-to-person, face-to-face in real life. But yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you are, you work with intuitive eating, which is, it's very coincidental because I just stumbled across, what was this book called? Um, The Effort Diet, (laughs) you know, the Effort Diet. Yeah. So I was reading the sample of that and starting to look into some of the groups on intuitive eating because um, diet, body image, the shame around body image, that's always been, you know, a big interest to me as well as uh, nutrition and then the impact on mental health. So really uh, looking forward to having you on the show to discuss your thoughts about uh, 
that that whole diet culture and how your program can help people. So um, tell me about yourself. How did you get into this? Yeah. So, I mean, it really came from my own personal struggles. So I like, I know many women struggled with their weight for most of their life. And I also simultaneously struggled with my mental health. I was struggling with depression and anxiety. And I was really convinced that if I just get to this certain body size, I'll be happy. I won't be anxious. Things will be great. My life will start, you know, and we're, we're shown that kind of image, whether it be through social media now, or back then, you know, more magazines and, you know, TV and movies and all this that like the beautiful woman, she's happy, she doesn't really have any problems that are really too big and everyone should strive to look a certain way. And so I, again, struggling with mental health, battling with that, convinced that my body was the issue that went on for several years. And after university, I started working for a fortune 500 beauty company. And there the company culture was of course, very beautiful, very kind of Vogue-like. And that sounds super intimidating. (laughs) it was super intimidating. I'd moved to a new city. I was all by myself. And, you know, I was really using food to try to cope and to help me feel better. And at the time I was really demonizing that looking back, I realized it was a tool in my tool belt to help me through a difficult time. But at that time I was just filled with so much shame and embarrassment and my weight was changing. My weight was increasing. And I was again, convinced that my body's the problem. You know, if I just get it together and eat better, then I'll be happy and depression, anxiety and all that. And so I ended up going on this Instagram influencers, 12 week weight loss guaranteed program. And it was insane. And I messaged her being like, Hey, like, I feel really dizzy. Like, I think this is not enough calories for me. She's like, no, no, just like intermittent fast and like drink more black coffee. And I'm like, that sounds wrong, but you have, (laughs) you have millions of followers and you have perfect abs. So like, I'll kind of blindly trust you. Right. And so I kept going on this crazy diet and all of a sudden I was being posted all over her social media, like, look at Victoria, look at her transformation. She's killing it on my program. And, you know, my whole life, I'd seen these women in the before and after photos thinking the after photo, her life was perfect. And there I was being this after photo and I'd never been so unhappy or so unhealthy and my mental health had never been worse. And so, you know, I, this kind of diet spiraled and spiraled and it turned into anorexia and then it turned into binge eating and bulimia. My hair was falling out. I lost my period. Like I was an absolute mess, but I was in the body that I thought I should always want to be in the body that I thought was going to bring me all this happiness and joy. And so I really had this rock bottom moment. In fact, it was, I'd woken up, had what I considered an extra handful of trail mix at like 2am because I was barely eating at this point and decided that to burn it off an adequate punishment was to go on a 30 kilometer run. So it was 3 a.m. in Montreal, running up Mount Royal to burn off these calories and getting to the top of the hill and realizing like, you know, seeing the skyline of Montreal, the sun was rising, being like, there's never gonna be enough weight loss that I'm happy. I've never been so miserable. I have never been so anxious, so depressed nothing in my life feels like it's working right now. I felt so disconnected to everyone around me. And my life was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, becoming more obsessive about food. And I was like, I'm never going to find a sense of freedom by adding in more layers of control to my life. And so there I was that rock bottom moment. And I kind of decided then and there that I, I couldn't do this on my own. I had really 
decided that I was just like, you know, strong, independent woman my entire life. But I realized, you know, I need help, but it takes a strong and powerful person to say I'm not okay. And I need some help right now. And so I ran down the hill and called an eating disorder hotline. And that kind of started to kick off my journey towards becoming intuitive eating coach. But that was kind of, again, the background, I guess, as it were, the long short of it to what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. That That's incredible. That moment that when you just, you just have that moment sometimes and you just realize, and for some people it's like, oh, it's my weight. And they lose a bunch of weight and they go, nope, that wasn't it. <laughs> On to the next thing. And nope, that wasn't it. And mm-hmm. this uh, feeling that just beyond the horizon is happiness. And mm-hmm. that's so untrue. It's so untrue. And it, it also releases us, releases us a responsibility of being happy right now, right? If it's always, I'm going to be happy when, if X, then I'll Y, right? Well, I'll go on the date when I lose this weight, or once I get this promotion, then I'll go on that vacation or do that thing or whatever. And it allows us to say, yeah, you know what? I don't have to work on myself right now. I don't have to work on being happy right now because future self is happy when she achieves those things or he achieves those things. And, you know, we will never feel happy with external things, right? It's like, it's such an internal thing. And, you know, so many people will go and the executive said, well, they'll lose the weight. And they're like, that's not it. Then they go and they get the promotion. That's, that's not it. They'll get married. That's not it. The house, that's not it. And they're ticking off all the boxes they were told that they should be ticking off from society. And then you get to your midlife and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what, what am I doing? I've done everything I should do. And yet I'm unhappy. And it's because none of those external things were the issue to begin with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then we talk about that in mental health all the time, going yeah. from the external to the internal locus of control, where if you derive your self-esteem from likes, those are completely outside of your control. You derive your self-esteem from what other people think of your relationship or, or the money that you make, not because you're happy having earned it, but because of what you think it, it's supposed to do for you. It's, yeah, I mean, essentially it takes away your ability to feel happy. And then in retrospect as well, we look back and we go, oh, I was so happy back then. No, you weren't. <laughs> yeah. You weren't. <laughs> we romanticize so many things, right? Whether it be in a smaller body, like, oh, looking back at this picture of myself in high school, I was so thin then. I can't believe that I wasn't appreciating my body back then. Like I looked amazing. And in the moment we took that photo, we were thinking to ourselves oh my God, I can't believe I look this big. Like I wish I looked as thin as I did in middle school, whatever, right? We, we romanticize other times of our life because we don't necessarily feel happy in our current life now. And so we kind of paint this image of like, then was better or future will be better or whatever. And it's just this way, I think that our brain tries to kind of justify where we're at and tries to kind of anchor itself in and kind of give itself some perspective. But exactly like we're saying, you know, it's, especially with the work I do with women around body image, like it's, it's not a body problem. What we think is a body problem is a life problem. So when I say something like, you know, oh, I need to lose weight or I hate the way I look or I feel disgusting. What I'm actually saying is I want to feel loved. I want to feel connected. I want to feel worthy. I want to feel good enough. And none of those things are going to come from a body size. And so when we're continuously chasing that body, we're continuously chasing the career or whatever, we will achieve those things or maybe we won't. But because then we're not happy when we get there, because 
you know, happy doesn't come from those things, then we're just continuing on that journey, thinking that we're, we're the issue, which then ties so much into perfectionism and the work that I do, this idea of like, once I get to this point and I'm perfect, then things will be great. But because perfect isn't attainable, then we think we're just weren't perfect enough. And we double down and just go, well, once I get to this weight, or once I get this promotion, then it'll be enough. And because we're always falling short, because we're human, that just compounds on the issue and we just keep chasing it. Absolutely. And you mentioned as well, um, you mentioned just the role of self-sabotage and, uh, you know, as a person, I just, I just had a baby. Um, she's 12 weeks on Saturday and I'm kind of getting back into that. Okay. Well, everybody says it'll just melt off after you have a baby. No, it does not. <laughs> I just throw this out there for you. It does not, um, not for people that have a predisposition or genetic or you know, even just an early experience with obesity, right? It, your body hangs on to it. And so it's really interesting now to sort of monitor myself and then also be working with clients where you try to restrict, you try to do something that you really believe in, and then you rebound so hard. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about what you say is called like self-sabotage? What role does that play? Yeah. So self-sabotage, we think it's such a, you know, it's a willpower problem. We just need to be stronger, whatever. Self-sabotage is self-protection, right? There's always a reason we're doing it. There's, it's never because your brain is being mean to you. It's not your body trying to say you're, you're an idiot. Let me teach you or something along those lines. That's just simply not the case. And so the, when, when I work with women, I talk about the four different types of restriction. So often we just think about physical restriction, not getting enough food. So if I'm not eating enough food, my more primitive part of my brain is going to send out every single signal that it knows how to, to tell you, Hey, your energy levels are getting dangerously low because calories are energy. And if they get any lower, we're not gonna be able to fight off the lion or the Viking if it comes over the hill, right? Our brain is operating if it's a long time ago, we need this fail safe in place. Otherwise we would not be here as a species, right? It's like this feast famine mentality. If we were in a famine a long time ago, and that's essentially what dieting or restriction is, it's telling your brain that we're in a famine. Then of course, when it has the opportunity to eat food, so maybe 2 a.m. or late at night after you've been restricting, aka putting yourself in a famine all day, your brain is going to go no more. You know, something is wrong here. We have to keep our energy levels back up for survival. We have to continue living, right? Go and binge and go and eat on all these foods. And it's not self-sabotage, it's self-protection. If we didn't have this in place, we would die. And so understanding, like if I find myself eating large quantities of food later in the day or even throughout the day, what need is not being met right now? Is it physical, right? Am I not getting enough calories into my body? Am I restricting myself? Because then your brain, your body has every single right to tell you to go and eat a whole bunch of food because that's survival. Mm -hmm. The second piece I look at is mental restriction. Am I making foods good or making them bad, right? Oh, I'm so good for eating this. I'm so naughty for eating that. The judgment, uh, judgment of foods, basically. Exactly. Like we put so much, you know, there's always like there's a meme going around or whatever. And it's like, oh my God, I have this muffin. It's like, oh, I'm so bad for eating this muffin. It's like, it's a muffin, Karen. You didn't kill a child or something. <laughs> like, it's like something yeah. like that. And it's like, yeah, like we make it out to be this like horrible moral thing when we're eating food. And what I'll say is that restriction creates rebellion and allowance creates space for choice, right? When we're telling ourselves, I can't have something, your brain is going to fixate on it, right? It's like me telling you to don't think about pink elephants, ironic processes. You're going to be thinking about pink elephants versus I tell you to think about anything you want, right? It's kind of like, oh, okay, a lot more of a chill vibe there versus telling you to not think about something. <laughs> Same thing with food, right? <laughs> um, if I tell you like starting tomorrow, 
you're never allowed to have chocolate ever again. They're off limits. Probably tonight you're going to eat, I mean, chocolate's my favorite food, insert favorite food of yours. <laughs> but, you know, for example, chocolate, tomorrow probably you're going to, or tonight you're going to eat as much chocolate as you possibly can because tomorrow you're being told you can't have it anymore. Versus if I said to you, you're allowed to have as much chocolate as you possibly can at any given time in your entire life, there's always going to be a chocolate bar at arm's length, like arm's length away from you then maybe like day one and two, you're like, this is amazing, eat all the chocolate. Then after that, you're gonna lose interest because you're no longer restricting it from yourself, right? So that's always a way I like to kind of describe mental restriction is like giving yourself that permission, giving yourself that allowance, removing the moral connotation you've assigned to food. And then once you peel back those layers, you can intuitively be like, is this what I want? Is this not what I want? But when you add on the layer again of restriction, it feels this rebellious fixation on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second piece of mental restriction is how you speak to yourself, right? If I'm always telling myself I'm horrible, I'm disgusting, I'm a failure, you're layering so much shame onto yourself. Shame actually triggers the same part of the brain as if you're in physical pain. Our brain doesn't like to be in pain. It wants to avoid it, which means we likely turn to things like food or maybe even social media, scrolling on it as a way to self-medicate, self-soothe from that kind of painful behavior that we're essentially trying to avoid. And so those are kind of the first two pieces, mental and uh, physical. And then all the, this third piece um, it can be is emotional restriction, meaning like you're judging yourself for how you're feeling. I shouldn't feel this way. I should feel that way. Or I feel this way, but you're slapping a gratitude sticker onto something. So you're saying, oh, I feel upset right now, but I shouldn't feel upset because at least I still have a job, right? So it's kind of painting over how you actually feel, judging it, shaming it, or maybe you don't even give yourself the time of day to feel anything at all, mm -hmm. right? And so emotions and food become this very confusing relationship where we often use food as a way to kind of numb and suppress and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last piece I talk about when it comes to restriction is connection restriction. Humans are a social species. That's why we want to have a certain body type. That's why we want to look a certain way because our brain is biologically driven to want to be a part of a group. And so if I'm differing from that or have a lot of different opinions, that more primitive part of my brain, especially if we're not feeling confident in who we are, right? It's gonna to start to freak out and it's gonna be like, oh my gosh, we have to lose the weight or we have to look a certain way. Otherwise, again, going back to this more primitive part of our brain, we're gonna be kicked out of the tribe. And our brain is very much driven by oxytocin, neurotransmitter for the connection, feeling a part of a group, bonding, all of that. People often think about it as well um, when it comes to like after childbirth and bonding and all that. Um, but basically our brain is wired to want to be in a group. And if we are not feeling a sense of connection and especially during this past little while with the pandemic, you know, we don't feel often connected to those around us. We're using a false sense of connection with social media, which often drives disconnection and shame and isolation. And all of those things for our brain is like, ah, oh, we're going to get kicked out of the tribe, right? And again, a long time ago, that meant if I'm kicked out of the tribe, I'm in the middle of the jungle. I'm gonna, not gonna survive. So we have the genes passed forward today at the people who best assimilated, best conformed, best you know, stayed in the group. So understanding that when you're wanting to you know, fit in and look a certain way, that all comes back to how your brain is operating. But if you're not giving yourself kind of true genuine connection with those around you, your brain is gonna see that as a red flag. And again, come back to food is often a way to kind of buffer and kind of numb out against that. So that was a ton of information I just kind of threw out there, but basically those are kind of the four pillars I talk about when it comes to, to food and kind of how that relates back to listening to our own body um, and what eating certain ways can kind of really mean. 
Mm -hmm. So it's really all aspects of the human experience. It's biological, it's mm -hmm. social, it's emotional, it's, you know, it's mental, it's the way that we speak to each other to ourselves. And then you mentioned as well that social media piece, and wanting that belongingness. However, the interesting thing about social media is, is truly how fake it is now. You know, there's sometimes I'll follow for fun those forums on Instagram reality. And it's like, people have fillers and, and plastic surgery and, and their, their hair is fake and their nails are fake and everything is fake. And yet we have this need to belong. And how do you feel like social media has influenced people, particularly during the pandemic and that, that time of disconnection? Yeah. Here's the thing about social media. It can be amazing and it can be terrible depending how intentionally you use it. When I first started using social media, I was using it in all the wrong ways. I was following all the fitspo accounts, like fitness inspiration, you know, all the models, all the people who had perfectly curated food, you know, they're putting the food on the plate and it looked perfect and all the perfect portions and all that. And it drove so much shame for me. It drove so much feeling of I'm not enough. I need to do better. They're doing better than me. On understanding is, I mean, you kind of consciously know that there is a, it's a highlight reel, right? Like everything they're posting behind the scenes is completely different, but our brain doesn't always kind of being like, yeah, that's actually the case. So during the pandemic, you know, I was advising so many clients to do like a Mary Kondo of their social media. So being really intentional, like, does this account bring me joy or does this account bring me shame? Because your brain, again, going back to what I was saying before, being in the tribe, it's basically trying to understand its place in the world. If you're creating an environment for itself, even be it a virtual environment where it feels like it can't feel like, where it feels like it doesn't fit in, where it feels like it doesn't see itself represented. Again, it's gonna go back to, oh, I have to change myself, I have to fix myself, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me. Shame, 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 right? And shame never drives positive action, right? It always drives a negative action. It always drives a self-soothing behaviors, things that don't truly actually serve us. And so being really intentional with social media, there's amazing content creators that make you feel really empowered, that help you embrace your body, that allow you to live, you know, an intuitive lifestyle, but it involves being really honest with yourself. Like, does this account actually bring me those feelings or does it give me these feelings of not enough? And so going through unfollowing the people that genuinely don't serve you, maybe even muting some people if they're even family or friends that are you're finding that are not actually serving you at this point. And it's nothing personal to anyone, right? It's just where you're at in your journey and you have to honor yourself and put yourself first. So adding in lots of accounts, putting in different accounts, you know, maybe that is baby animals or like spoken word or like, you know, really allow yourself to make it this really epic environment where you see yourself represented. And so for example, like I have cellulite on my legs. I didn't wear shorts for the first like 20 years of my life because I was like, this is so terrible. Like this is gross, blah, blah, blah. And then going on this journey. And now I have, I follow a lot of women who have a lot of cellulite and it normalized it for me in my brain. When I saw myself represented on my social media feed, it felt safer than for me to be myself. So if you have a feature about yourself that you have a, you're having a hard time accepting or love or loving, go on social media, find women using like the hashtags that you can use, like search in there about women who have that feature exaggerated, right? So if you don't like your nose, go look for one with bigger noses than you or mm -hmm. like, you know, curly hair, curly hair, like whatever that looks like for you, right? Go and see yourself represented on your feed so that your brain feels safe to be itself.
Mm-hmm. That's something that we have certainly uh, worked with people to, to do exactly that, because you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. It can be perfect. I tend to crap all over social media all the time, just because that we just see all the bullying and we see all like the negativity, but you're right. It can be a positive thing depending on who you're following and why they're posting. <laughs> Because yeah. it can be a little exhausting sometimes too, when it feels like everybody just wants attention from you. You're yeah. like, tap if you agree, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I hear you. It's that me- that mental aspect. And so, so at Kelly Mental Health, we work a lot with trauma survivors. And mm-hmm. one of the things we see coming out of trauma a lot of times, which is again, that emotional pain is that need for control. Mm-hmm. And Food is only one of the ways that that manifests. Sometimes control comes out in terms of anxiety about um, our grades in school, about our work performance, about having the perfect relationship or finding the perfect people. You know, it's a sense Mm -hmm. of control. And so when you talk about intuitive eating, that inner dieter of me, I'm shrieking inside my brain. I'm freaking out right now. So tell me how you would convince someone that intuitive eating is the right course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely food can be a way to control. Right. And so for me, it was exactly what I was doing. I was trying to control my internal world, my external world, everything through the use of food. And here's the thing about food. We can never control it enough. Right? I was saying before, you know, earlier on, like we will never be free by implementing control that comes with food that comes with any area of our life is that we're adding on control because we feel a sense of unsafety within our own body right? And food can be a way to try to create a feeling of safety in our body by creating this kind of familiarity, this space of like known, um, because our brain wants to operate off only evidence to know that something is safe to do something. And if we can control so many different pieces, for example, food, it can give us a sense of safety. And so with intuitive eating, one of the building blocks I start with is helping people to find a sense of safety within their own body so they can feel like they can trust their body, right? Control comes from lack of trust within yourself, I don't feel safe with myself. I feel like I can't trust myself. Then like, of course, I'm going to look for external ways, whether it be calorie counting or macro counting to try to kind of anchor that in. And so intuitive eating is about trusting yourself and knowing that your body knows best. But if you feel unsafe in your body, then of course, you're not going to trust yourself, right? Safety and trust are very much one in the same. And so even like simple things that I work with clients on where it comes with creating that feeling of safety in the body would be even things like simple, like breath work right? So activating that vagus nerve to put you in a parasympathetic state. So having a longer exhale than inhale, Um, you know, scheduling and check-ins on their phone throughout the day, literally just, I have, I always tell clients, so go into your alarms, set silent alarms, change where it says the alarm and put, how are you feeling right now? Take a breath, schedule that in as a silent alarm, not a sound, you'll scare yourself. (laughs) I've done that before (laughs) on accident alert. It's like, relax. I'm like, I'm not relaxed. (laughs) Um, but scheduling those in throughout the day can be a great way to kind of hit that reset button, take a few breaths and again, really ground yourself again, put yourself into that parasympathetic state so that we can start to connect better with our body because so often we're just going, 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 right. We are very much sympathetic fight or flight mode on our feet. So like we're fighting something, we're fleeing something. It's a defensive state. Intuitive eating involves getting very present, being very, very mindful, very connected to yourself. And you can't be in a defensive fighting state if you want to be listening to yourself. And so these check-ins, asking yourself the questions, I always also use the analogy of, you know, it's often like we're driving down the highway at 400 miles an hour and we have signs on the side of the road that say like, hey, I'm emotionally hurting right now. 
I'm really lonely. I'm really hungry. I wanted food right now to kind of avoid this feeling. Wow, I can't talk. To avoid this <laughs> feeling. Um, so like whatever those signs say kind of on the side of the road, but you're driving so quickly, you can't actually read those signs, right? And then we end up turning to food as a way to kind of numb and buffer and distract all of that. And so those little check-ins throughout the day can be a way to start to trust yourself by checking in with yourself, creating that safety within your own body by just slowing down and realizing this is what I want. How can I honor that? Because trust is built in those little moments of showing up for yourself, not in the big moments. So it can be in that little moment of, hey, I'm feeling really tired right now. Okay, I'm just going to go take a little sit down. I'm going to take a few breaths, just check in with me, you know, giving yourself that compassion, that kind of ability to show up for yourself in those little micro moments. And then that stacks on itself. Like there's no big, massive tool, like do this and all of a sudden you'll trust yourself, right? It's consistently in the little moments over time. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I assume too, you would you get people to get rid of the scale? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> There's so many components to this, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the scale is that second unwanted opinion, right? It's your, your weight goes up. Oh, am I actually hungry right now? Should I really eat right now? Oh, maybe not because my weight went up this morning. Right. Or I stayed the same. Okay. I have to eat exactly what I was eating, or maybe I still want to lose weight. So maybe I should eat a little bit less or it went down. Oh, okay. I should eat only exactly these things. Like it can become so obsessive. It can teach us to not listen to our body because we're listening to the scale, mm-hmm. right? We're listening to something else and the scale can't tell you anything about yourself. It's literally gravitational pull on the earth measured. That's it. It doesn't have anything to do with your worth, has nothing to do with who you are, what it means to be you. Not to mention, because your weight is fluctuating so much naturally as a person, I talk a lot about set point weight, which I can describe as well, Um, but our body's naturally changing. And if we place our worth as a person and our decisions about what to eat and what what not to eat on the scale, we're setting ourselves up for this life of turbulent self-worth, as well as a very tumultuous relationship with food. Would you say that there's any populations, any particular people that are not suitable to do intuitive eating? Mm-hmm. I would say if you're early on in eating disorder recovery, it might not be the best decision. Um, simply because you, at this point, your ability to connect with your body, your ability to tune into your hunger and fullness cues might not fully be there. I know when I tried to do intuitive eating right off the bat, when I was coming out of anorexia, I thought I was listening to my body. I thought I was tuning in, but I was also so afraid at that point that I was going to eat too much, that I wasn't eating enough food. Mm-hmm. And so it can, I think there's definitely a way to move through recovery and then kind of towards the end of it, you know, move into intuitive eating. I think that's definitely a possibility. That's exactly what I've done. I know a lot of people who have done that as well, but I think right off the bat, if you're someone who's struggling. I mean, there's kind of different components around different eating disorders. But if you are in eating disorder recovery, I would definitely say talk to a professional about it. Um, See if it makes sense for you because it is an amazing way to be. And I think it's definitely kind of on the horizon for everyone who is going through recovery as a place to get to. Um, But right off the bat, if you're you know, maybe massively under eating, you're someone who's really obsessive around healthy eating, you know, like orthorexic, there's different kind of components there where Sometimes it is about intentionally having enough calories, right? Intentionally getting enough food in our body, all those kind of things um, can be really important to be aware of. And so intuitive eating off the bat might not be right for them. 
Mm -hmm. And just uh, for people that don't know, orthorexia is often a fixation on the purity of foods or the say specific diet where all other foods are, you know, unacceptable and it really is, um, it could be maddening to try to stay on it. Um, yeah. Again, it's about the perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah, Obsession with healthy eating. Um, which again, even goes back into social media, right? If we were to go off of a lot of these influencers, we would be, you'd be like, and maybe they're orthorexic because there's this obsession looking of like, you're only eating certain things. Um, so being aware that if you're someone who's eating lots of varieties of food and not eating exactly perfect, you're fine. You know, that's normal. It's you're, you're being human to eat a large variety of foods, not just perfectly curated ones. So don't compare yourself to people on social media because you know, I was one of the people that was posted as before and after photo and no one knew what was going on behind the scenes. And even though I looked quote unquote, really healthy because I'd been an athlete my whole life. And so when I lost a bunch of weight, I was, you know, I had very cut body abs, everything. I looked very fit to people. I looked very healthy. So I, but I'd never been more unhealthy. So just be very cognizant that what you're seeing online, what people are eating, what they're posting, you have no idea what's going behind the scenes, their mental health and, you know, potential eating disorders, anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so this is a, a really wonderful way to try to get in touch with yourself, to lose the shame around a natural process, which is eating. The The thing that challenges me and the thing that I've struggled with, even in my practice, is that when it comes to obesity and metabolic disorders, uh, our leptin signals are messed up. Our satiety signals are messed up. Our our hunger alarm bells are going off and we don't seem to have proper control over it. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to, you know, processed foods and the bliss point where there there is a book called Bliss Point and they talk about how, um, you know, in a lab, they go take salt, sugar and fat and they find the exact bliss point to make you continue eating, never fall, always Mm -hmm. wanting more. And it messes, it hijacks our ability to feel full. And so that's, I think that can be a a scary thing. If you approach this idea of, I'm just going to listen to my body. Well, my body will not tell me to stop. My mouth will be cut up before I decide to stop some of these foods Mm -hmm. because they are specifically formulated to mess with my signals. So what, what are your thoughts about the processed foods and, and including those? Yeah, I think there's totally hear you. And I think there's definitely a space to be aware of the processed kind of foods, because obviously our brain has not been designed to handle these types of foods, right? Thousands of years ago, you know, we were designed to seek out the pleasure of berries and nuts for calories, not so much the very processed foods that we've, you know, have easy access to today. With that said, I think so much of allowing those foods into our life is being very mindful and being very curious and very, very aware, right? So I know that if I, for example, want to have like even not so much now, but maybe a few years ago, if I was having chocolate at 2 a.m., probably maybe wouldn't have been a good decision for me because chocolate maybe was a food that I was really having a lot of sugars around and I was going through recovery and it, you know, kicked off a dopamine surge in my brain, dopamine, the anticipation of reward makes you want to have more and more and more of it, difficult with satiation around it. And so understanding like some different foods that are more processed, it can be difficult to listen to your body. That's why I always like to, for example, even use something like a crowding out approach. So if there is a food that you maybe have struggles with stopping to eat, feeling satiated around, what I like to do is put that food on a plate. So maybe it's chocolate, for example, in this little scenario, I keep going back to chocolate. I'm a chocolate girl. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
no shame. (laughs) No show, no, no shame. I love chocolate. (laughs) I'm fully here for it. Um, And then, so putting it on the plate, cold piece of chocolate, whatever. Putting on the plate as well, other foods that you feel completely morally neutral around, like completely safe. So maybe that is like apples or bananas or carrots or whatever. Crowding that on the plate so that in our brain, we're seeing something that is maybe we see as something maybe morally more negative, but something that's more morally neutral. So we're crowding it out together. So we're mentally kind of making it more mentally neutral. We're also giving ourselves uh, more food to eat. So the higher volume of it, which means the food is going to hit our stomach. Likely you're going to feel a bit more satiated because we're kind of pairing it with something else. Um, Additionally, what I would suggest is to set a timer. So after you finished eating, set a timer for like eight or 10 minutes. Tell yourself when the timer goes off, I'm allowed to go get more of this food. What that actually does is allows the dopamine surge to wind down, which means you're able to get back to your prefrontal cortex, which is the frontal part of your brain, impulse control, future thinking, rational thinking, goal setting, all of that. Um, And at that point, you can kind of decide if I want more or not, because by this time the food has hit your stomach. So you feel more satiated because you didn't just have the more processed foods. You're having it with more whole foods as well. Food has hit your stomach back into your prefrontal cortex. Do I actually want more of this? Right. And then because you told yourself as a timer was going to start, you know, I can have more of it at the end of it. You kind of satiated that part of your brain that wants more and more and more by saying you can have more and more and more. We're just going to slightly delay it. But in that time, again, you're betting back into the front part of your brain, able to decide if I truly want more or not, feeling more full. Um, but again, even building evidence for yourself that it is okay and it does feel safe to eat these foods. As going back to before, you know, our brain works off of evidence to know if something is safe or not. And so if every time I have chocolate, it becomes this out of control feeling, right? That's my brain has evidence that it's gonna happen this way. So eating it in a different way. So maybe that is having it a bit earlier in the day with other people, changing the environment, creating new evidence for yourself. You can enjoy this food in a more empowered way. Be cognizant that you will likely feel like you wanna have more and more. Knowing that's okay, that's just part of your brain, how it works. Setting that timer, crowding it on your plate, giving yourself permission to have more. And then slowly over time, we're building that evidence up that we can enjoy this. We just have to be a little bit more cognizant of maybe how our brain might be working around it. Mm-hmm. So, so you do definitely recommend that there are some sort of stops in place or pauses in place, some strategies so that people, you know, you're not just saying, okay, hey, go nuts. Yeah, yeah. And I think intuitive eating is, it's never about going nuts. <laughs> Cause I think there's like a misconception around like, yeah, you're allowed to eat whatever you want. So just like go crazy, but it's rather <laughs> you're allowed to eat whatever you want. And within that, it is a, a framework of self-care. I know if I eat nothing but donuts all day long, I'm going to feel like crap. I know I can have donuts all day long. I'm not restricting myself. That's also a real big red flag for me if I want to think about donuts. I'm probably trying to avoid something. Maybe I haven't eaten enough. My brain is like, what's the quickest way we can get our energy back up for survival, right? Like there's something going on there because I will feel terrible if I eat all of those foods. And that's not really honoring my body. That's not really truly listening to my my body. It's rather listening to a part of myself that is likely trying to avoid, trying to get energy levels back up, feeling very isolated. So if I'm noticing that I'm wanting to go to some extreme, if I'm noticing that I want to eat a whole bunch of something, or even for me, if I'm walking to the kitchen and I know I'm not actually hungry, it's like a little flag to be like, hey, what's going on here? Of course, I have, go, I have permission to go and get that food, but it's a little bit of a warning bell for me to say, hey, something's coming up right now. Maybe we can go and work through that. If I, after I want to go get some food, perfect, like no restriction there, but maybe just getting curious and honest and open with myself as well. It's interesting. I, you know, I have a cousin that raises daughters to be pretty sheltered, never really let them go out and hang out with friends. Absolutely no dating 
once the daughter turned 18, she was boy crazy. (laughs) As soon as she moved out, she was like dating, dating, dating. And it was, it was interesting because she hadn't really been exposed to the dating world before. So Mm -hmm. she was very rapidly making all those mistakes that you normally would have been able to slowly do if you had permission to do it. And Mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of uh, like, you know, myself, even as you're moving from essentially the role of a chastised child to the role of an adult where it's like, well, yeah, I can eat this all day if I want to, but I know the consequences. So Mm -hmm. I want to make better choices. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly it. And like, even growing up, my family ate super, super healthy. And so sure enough, when I went to university and I went to school in the States and it was like, I went to a Walmart and there was literally a full aisle of Oreos, like different Oreo flavors. And I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) holy, like it was, it was fast and furious. But the thing that prevented me from ever feeling satiated was the guilt that surrounded it and the feeling of, I shouldn't be doing this and the feeling of I'm going to gain weight and that is bad. Right. So again, going back to this kind of restriction creates rebellion versus if I said to myself, I'm allowed to have as many Oreos if I want, do I feel like eating Oreos right now? Right. It's like maybe again, day one and two, it's like, Ooh, Oreos. But then it's like, it just becomes Oreos, right? It, it loses its novelty and it loses its excitement. And so intuitive eating, they kind of talk about that as like the honeymoon period of like, you get really, so for example, you, you know, or you're the friend there, you know, saying the, the boy crazy, right? It's like, I feel super boy crazy because I, I haven't had any access to boys. And all of a sudden it's like, ah, or I mean, even for me growing up, like it wasn't a big deal for me to drink in Canada. Like we were drinking from rather young ages, going to parties, young ages. And then in the States, they turned 21 and they went crazy. <laughs> like yeah. They're yeah. blackout drunk um, versus, you know, you look at places like in Europe, they're allowing their kids to have not advocating for anyone to drink alcohol. Side note, um, <laughs> but this is not like me, like let your kids drink alcohol from a young age. Intuitive drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is the name of the podcast now. Okay. We've gone a completely different direction. <laughs> That sounds going to be good. We'll call you next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God. Um, but you know, in Europe, they let their kids drink wine from like a young age. Like they'll have like little sips of it at dinner, you know, dinner maybe table, like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's not a big deal. So then as they get older, it's like, it's not like, Oh, let's go chug some wine. Like It's just like, <laughs> it's like, so whatever. It's the same thing with food. It's this idea of, I can't have this. I shouldn't have this. This is off limits that propels the need to have it. And then we have these moments of the day was tough. I'm overtired. I'm super hungry. I'm stressed. Oh, look, here's a bag of Oreos. Let's go crazy on it. And as I'm eating it, telling myself tomorrow, I'll get back on track. I'll be better. It's a new day. I'll be good. And again, it's fueling this restriction, fueling this idea of I'm now taking this away from you mentally. So eat as much as you can right now. Versus if I said to myself, and I really followed through on this idea, and I'll use it a personal example. I used to really struggle with binging on peanut butter. And so every time I'd finish a jar, as I was eating, I'd be like, this is it. Come on, Victoria. Like, you're so stupid. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're embarrassed, blah, blah, blah. Like, just spreading myself, braiding myself. I'm not buying any more tomorrow. And of course, what would happen the next day. I'd eat mostly nothing all day. Be like, oh, I'm so good, blah, blah, blah. Get to about 8, 9 p.m. Sure enough, Victoria's walking to the corner store to get the thing of peanut butter, those little bears on it, eating it with Oreos, watching Netflix, finishing the whole thing, right? And then once I started to realize, like, I can go out and buy the peanut butter. And I I tell myself, I'm going to just keep buying this peanut butter. Like, I'm just going to keep buying it. At this point, I didn't even understand really the intuitive eating kind of realm. 
But knowing that if I buy the peanut butter and I keep telling myself, hey, I'm this is going to be here tomorrow. I'm going to keep buying more and more and more of it. First day, yeah, I finished it. The next day I had like half of one. The next day I had a little bit less. Obviously it wasn't like a perfectly linear journey, Mm -hmm. but now it's like peanut butter literally has no value to me. Like I have one in my fridge and actually have multiple and because I have like the natural and then I have the other ones, whatever. And it's like, I could be bothered less about peanut butter. Talk to me like five years ago. I couldn't even have it near me. I couldn't even keep it in my kitchen. So that just speaks to kind of what, regardless of the type of food, if you tell yourself, yeah, there's so much more of this comes from, right? This idea of abundance versus scarcity, your brain likes abundance. It likes to know that there's food availability. If you tell yourself there's no more food, you know, it's scarcity, it's going to start freaking out because that's a basic need. So leaning into that, and again, giving yourself that full permission, that full allowance. And then in doing so, you remove the novelty, you remove the feeling of rebellious, I have to have this because it's just always available. It loses its excitement. Loses its excitement. Oh, can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you really convey that message really clearly. Um, you know, having done nutrition, nutrition research for many, many years, there, there certainly is that pull to, you know, trying to make sure that you're making the healthy choices and, and knowing even just for what your body needs. Obviously we notice there's a big difference with our uh, willpower and our hunger level if we haven't slept well. Oh yeah. And so, and I imagine that must also factor in to some of the teachings that you do, you know, being much more aware of your own body. Like if you haven't slept or you've broken sleep, how does this affect you? Yeah. Oh, massively. So there's a, I think it might be AA, but it's like halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Right. (laughs) And it's like, if you're any of those things, your decisions, your thoughts about yourself are likely going to be massively impacted. Right. Because your brain is operating as if something is kind of wrong. So if I'm, you know, if I'm feeling really angry, maybe, and I'm not, haven't learned to emotionally process food, that might look like turning to food. If I'm lonely again, might look like turning to food. And if I'm tired, especially Like when you're tired, again, going back to us saying before about your prefrontal cortex, like that front part of your brain, that higher thinking part of your brain, it's, it's tired. It's taken offline. You're very much being run by that more primitive part of your brain. It's very emotional. The part of your brain that decides whether or not things are a threat, your amygdala is much more in control, deciding whether or not something is good or bad or scary. And most of the time it's going to be defensive thinking that things are scary because you haven't gotten enough energy in your body, your your part of your brain is tired. And so, yeah, even when it comes to, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I know for a fact, I'm going to be reaching for higher calorie foods that day. And I have to be aware of that because again, sleep gives you energy. Food is energy, food is calories, right? And so I'm naturally going to gravitate towards that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's our brain being resourceful and smart and, you know, surviving, but being aware, like, oh, maybe I need to go to bed tonight instead of eating an extra two things of chocolate to try to keep myself up, right? So it's rather, you know, intuitive eating is all about getting curious, creating that awareness of yourself. And, you know, for myself as well, like if I'm overtired, my mental health is terrible. Like I have such dark thoughts about life, about myself, my outlook, if I'm overtired. And so being aware of like, okay, I only got five hours of sleep last night. I know today my outlook on life might be a little bit negative. I know I might be reaching towards more high calorie, high calorie, high palatable foods, having that awareness, being like, okay, aware of that. So don't make it mean something about myself. I don't make it mean that I'm bad or something has gone wrong or, you know, my whole life will be terrible. It's like, I'm just going to go to bed a bit earlier tonight. Going to give myself a whole bunch of self-compassion, understanding. The next day I wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. 
cool, we're back on track. Things are good, right? So yeah, sleep is a huge component of it. Um, and being aware of that is is so important to uh, help you practice intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever heard of the Fathead Kids book? I haven't, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a movie called Fathead and they talk about just basically trying to build the diet properly and, and cutting out these processed foods because they're, you know, they are built to hijack our system. So now there's a fathead kids book, which is just excellent because it describes the human body as the Nautilus. And so you have to power the Nautilus properly. And every once in a while, when the Nautilus needs fuel, it'll run the get hungry program. So we put fuel in it, but sometimes what's happening in our bodies is it's missing building blocks. It needs amino acids. It needs nutrients. It needs omega-3s. And so it's running the Get Hungry program and we keep putting energy in it, but we're not putting the building blocks in. And so as I was reading this to my, my son, he, now he'll refer to, you know, oh yeah, I got to fuel the Nautilus properly. But (laughs) um, the aspect of just making sure our nutritional needs are met are of course, very important to me and something I do go over with my clients. Um, But it's so confusing for people because every business out there is going to convince you that you need their product to be healthy. Mm -hmm. How do you coach people to even just know what in the world to eat to meet those bodily needs? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. And I love this idea of like the programming and your body, like, yeah, it's such a great way to think about it. Exactly. And so, yeah, if we're nutritionally deficient in certain things, our body, it it can get confusing, right? We want to make sure we're meeting our body's needs so we can feel our best, perform our best, all those kind of things. And so intuitive eating involves eating a large variety of foods, right? I think when it comes to looking at a way that can be a disorder type of eating is if we're only eating a very few types of food groups, very select kind of things, and that's not giving us a very big nutritional variety. Also studies show that when we're eating different foods, we're tagging those foods. Like our brain is actually nutritionally tagging different foods depending on what's actually in them. So which means that if I'm craving red meat, there's probably a reason why I'm craving red meat. It might be I'm actually craving the iron from it, right? And so maybe that is eating that, did that satiate that, did that feel good? I'm tagging that as well. If I'm craving lots of high sugar, high calorie chocolate chips, I'm not nutritionally craving those things. Be aware of that. You're probably craving an emotional change of state. You're probably craving a change of feeling better, right? So just be aware that if you're craving foods that are more nutrient dense, there's a reason why you've probably flagged it. You've tagged it in your body. And so, but giving within yourself, you know, your brain has to have the ability to tag those things, which means eating a large variety of food, not telling yourself I can only eat this kind of food or that kind of food, because that actually gives a flag of disordered eating, Mm -hmm. right? So I like, basically I hold coach about it's called, it's called intuitive eating, but I really talk about it as food freedom, the freedom to eat really anything and everything while also knowing it's a self-care thing. What do I feel good eating? And so giving yourself the permission to eat a whole bunch of different types of food, but knowing if I'm eating nothing but chocolate all day. I'm going to want to keep eating chocolate likely, and I'm going to feel terrible, but I'm going to keep eating it to make myself try to feel better, but I'm never going to feel better. It becomes this kind of like spiral, right? So the getting the curious, getting aware, getting honest to yourself, eating that variety of food so that your body can actually tag those different things, send out what you intuitively want, and then therefore you're able to kind of satiate that. Right. So, and again, with the, you mentioned just having all those foods in the house, me, I've always been a don't bring them in the house. I, I mean, you're speaking my language with your, <laughs> with your past <laughs> stories. I mean, even the peanut butter, like yeah. Adams is bomb. <laughs> uh, but the thing about that, you know, bringing all of those foods in the house and just sort of not really being overwhelmed with them, but just always knowing there is this constant, you don't need to pack it away as if, 
you'll never get it again because it's mm-hmm. there. And so it's like, you don't have to finish the bag. You don't have to hide it. That's got to be incredibly freeing for people that do suffer with the, you know, binge eating or shame around eating. So incredibly powerful because you learn to trust yourself again. It's such a disempowering feeling. Like I know I literally felt like a different person when I started eating certain foods like peanut butter or chocolate. And again, that was just me now understanding the way I coach science-based intuitive eating is like it was different parts of my brain, different priorities. But at the time I thought it was literally a default in my brain, something wrong with me. And every single night I felt like I was out of control. I lost trust in myself. I felt like I was you know, failing at life. And that literally impacts every single area of your life. If you feel like you can't trust yourself, that doesn't just exist with food that exists in every realm. And then again, we compound on the idea. If I just look a certain way, if I was just better with my diet, then I would trust myself and then it'd be perfect and blah, blah, blah. So it becomes that kind of self-fulfilling negative prophecy, as it were about everything, negative spiral. Um, And so it's so empowering to be able to keep any foods you want in the house and trust yourself around them fully, but also knowing you're not going to be perfect, right? I think there's this idea that once I decide to be, you know, an intuitive eater and I have food freedom, then now I eat perfectly when I'm, you know, hungry and I stop exactly when I'm full. And like, that's also another way to almost create this as a diet, right? So you're allowed to have the pleasure of food. You're allowed to eat when you're not actually hungry, but rather getting curious about why you're doing that. And understanding that doing this work, when you have this freedom around food, it's like looking at the good opportunity cost, right? If I'm always worrying about food, if I'm always fixating on my body and what I ate, what am I trading off, right? Am I not actually fully showing up with my family? Am I not fully showing up in my career? Because time and energy, those are limited resources. And if we're dedicating all that to shrinking ourselves and trying to make ourselves look a certain way, we're not able to truly show up as we are. And I, I get very passionate about it as like a feminist issue because I'm like, women have been taught to control their appetites, to control their body, control what they eat. And in doing so, they're not able to show up in their life. They're not able to have a seat at the table, smash the glass ceiling, you know, all those things. And then it makes me so sad that we see so many women, I work with so many women who have small kids and they don't have the certain foods in their house. They're making comments about their body and their kids are picking up on that, right? So we're creating generations of women. And I mean, it can be men as well, but especially if you're socialized as a woman, you know, that learn to distrust themselves, to learn to focus on their body and control their appetite and keep themselves small when we need more women in the world taking up space and being big and being loud and being powerful. That is really huge. That's powerful. I, I appreciate your, your perspective on this. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. I came in going, I'm going to fight with her. <laughs> and Cassandra said, then it don't. But it's, it's so important to be able to address that, that shame about mental health mm-hmm. and that all or nothing thinking the black and white sort of yeah. cognitive distortions that we all engage in because unfortunately even though it's a common experience for a lot of people, it's not healthy to wake up every Mm -hmm. morning with your first thought, did I lose more inches? Yeah. Or I feel bad about what I had last night or, you know, just feeling crummy about yourself because at the end of the day, who really cares? I'm not watching you. I'm watching me, right? (laughs) No one else is looking at us with the scrutiny that we look at ourselves with. That's exactly it. And we get one life. We get one life life. Are we spending that trying to shrink ourselves? I promise you, you will not get to the end of your life and think, I'm so glad I measured every time I had cookies or I counted all my calories. You will get to your end of your life and think to yourself, I'm so upset. I regret not living. 
I regret not caring that my thighs touched when I walked down the street. I regret not having the ice cream. I regret not going to the beach and wearing the bikini with my grandkids and actually going in the water and showing up. That's what the things you're going to regret, not eating the food. And maybe that means your body is a little bit heavier than what you thought it was going to be, but that's okay. Those pounds represent living, not failing. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't wait for this to air. I actually know a few people that are very excited to hear this episode. So um, we will drop some lines on how to find you, uh, your tags and all that. So thank you again so much. Really nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love chatting with you. All right, take care. Thank you once again to Victoria from all of us at the Kelly Mental Health Clinic located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. If you would like to learn more about Victoria and her incredible program, you can follow her on Instagram at Victoria Evans Official, or you can visit her website at www.victoriaevansofficial.com to learn more about her Facebook group and her incredible podcast, which is available on your favorite listening platform. And remember, those pounds represent living, not failing.